Well, good morning, Orchard. We are glad you're here this morning. Welcome. We're in the John series, and I have a couple questions for you. Have you ever looked around our nation at the divides and the issues we had the, the, and, and, and wondered if you could do anything for them? There's such big issues, and you have only the resources you have. Or what about, what about here locally? We see some things locally and, and things going on in our region. And have you ever wondered, like, what difference can I make? What can I do? Let's move even closer into our homes. In our homes, are there some issues or some, with some things with family, some wounds that seem insurmountable? Broken relationships or old scars that only loomed larger over the years. Yeah, it's a microphone there. How about making a change? How about in our own hearts? In our own heart? You know, oftentimes we have vices or private struggles that get so big in our life, we wonder, can I change? I've tried my own willpower. I mean, we have these issues out there, in our, you know, nationally, locally, in our homes, inside. How do we make a difference with the resources, the gifts, the talents, the way God has, has made us? Can we make changes? Can we make actual change? Now, the truth is we need God, for, God to come through for us in some, some ways, don't we? I, I think every one of us, if we're here, we can admit there is somewhere in my private life I need God to come through. I would say in our, in our, in our cities, in our, in our nation, we need God to come through and heal some things, don't we? And today, perhaps that's why you're tuning in. That's why you're here, is you need some hope. You're looking for God to move on your behalf. And I'm praying today, by the end of this service, that you would hear something from God, not from me, and you would know maybe what your next step would be. Today, we're in the John series, and we're talking about feeding the 5,000. It's the only miracle that's in all four Gospels, so we have a lot of different lenses to look at it through. But, but I want to be honest about the feeding of the 5,000. It's one of the most familiar miracles there are. I mean, I grew up a pastor's kid, so I've seen every flannel graph. I've seen the cartoons. I've seen the movies with the bad actors and all those things. I've seen, with the good actors, I've seen them all. I've seen the feeding of the 5,000. We're all familiar with it in some way. You know, here we have a kid who shows up with some fish. There's a lot of people. Jesus takes it. They all eat the end. But my prayer today is that through this, we are inspired in our faith and challenged. Because there is more at foot in the feeding of the 5,000 than I was aware of. And hopefully, we all learn something new through today. So um, let's, let's dive in. To John chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. You know, he's doing this to get away from the crowds of people. He wants some time alone. He wants some time with his disciples. And we see the Sea of Galilee up here. It's not that big. It's not a huge sea. In fact, you could watch a small boat. You could watch a boat go across it which is exactly what the crowds did. When Jesus set off by himself to get some time alone, they saw him leave, and they went around the edge to meet him wherever he would make landfall. They're like, we're not letting him get away. John 2 tells us why they're following Jesus. A great crowd of people followed him because they saw signs he had performed by healing the sick. Jesus has been doing amazing, incredible things, healing people, and, and, and notice it doesn't say they followed Jesus because they want to know him better. They followed Jesus because they, they really liked his teaching. It doesn't say they, they followed Jesus because they had a personal relationship with him. They followed Jesus because he's doing amazing things and they want to see more of it. They, maybe they want to experience it. Maybe they, they're sick or their family's sick. But whatever it is, if you're with Jesus, if you're around Jesus, he's going to do something. So... 
Jesus makes landfall. It says this, he went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near, and when Jesus looked up, he saw the great crowd coming toward him. The verse 10 tells us it's, it's approximate size is 5,000 men. Now, that's how they counted back then in that culture. The man would, would represent a family. So, honestly, theologians have, have debated this, but there's probably 20,000, closer to 20,000 people there, men, women, and children. And Jesus wanted some time. He's on vacation. Can you imagine being at the beach? You're finally there. You got that picture of your toes with the ocean behind it for your Instagram, you know? And right as you take that, 20,000 employees show up wanting to talk about work. That's what's happening here. He, he, he moved away. He, he, he wants to get away, and they show up. But, but Matthew tells us some things. Matthew tells us that Jesus had compassion on these people because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And all of them tell us that, that he was moved by compassion and began to heal and teach them. So Jesus, even on vacation, even getting away, he sees the people. His heart moves, and he begins to, to preach to them. He begins to heal them. Matthew adds that uh, Jesus taught them many things, which is funny because he goes on to tell us that it started to grow late. Luke tells us the day was coming to a close. I mean, you think my sermons are long. This is an all-day thing, and the sun is starting to go down. He's teaching them many things, and this is a long sermon. It's getting late. The people are tired. The people are hungry, and they still have to go home. The day ends. And all this crowd and the disciples and Jesus are there in this deserted place near the city of Bethsaida. Now, the disciples must have wondered if Jesus wasn't aware that he was, it was going long. Have you ever been in a sermon? Don't answer me if it's been in this room. you ever been in a sermon where the preacher just wouldn't land the plane? You're like, come on. Make the final point. Say the prayer. In, in Matthew 6.15, it says, as evening approached, so now our evening's approaching, the disciples came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Let's, you know, let's end this. Let's send the crowds away so they can go to their villages and, and buy some food. It seems like a reasonable request. Hey, Jesus, let's, let's end the service and let them go and buy some dinner. But then in a twist of events, Jesus turns to Philip, and in John 6, verse 6, he says, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? I'm sorry, what? This is a shock to the disciples. This is a complete deviation of what they would normally do. They, they, here's the deal. The disciples knew the drill. You show up, Jesus preaches. Minds are blown. Jesus heals. Bodies are made whole. Then he dismisses, and we go to the next place. Nowhere have we ever bought a... We don't bring a food truck, Jesus. You're a preacher and healer. Like this, let's, let's stick to what we normally do. Buying bread for 20,000 people? But Jesus is on purpose here. And in fact, it goes on. Let's read the rest of the verse. Jesus said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now, why Philip? Well, it's easy. Philip is from this area. If you go somewhere and you want to eat the best or get the best deal, you ask the person from there. Philip surely has a recommendation on the best bread shop that will give him the best deals, right? I mean, Philip, you're the most qualified human on earth to help us make the decision of where we can get the best bread to feed all these people. So, where can we, Philip? Philip hears the question, and I'm sure he looks over the mass of people. Goes over in his head some things. He's doing some math, right? 
doing some math, money, people, stores. And finally, in verse 7, he says, Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one of them to even have a bite. For each person to have one bite, it would cost over 200 denarii, half a year's wages. In other words, Jesus, there's uh, nowhere we can go. There's no way we can afford to feed all these people. We just can't do it. You see, this was a, a test for Philip to see if Philip would see the problem through a spiritual lens of faith, to see if Philip could see a spiritual solution to a practical problem. But Philip looks around, and like us, he sees impossibility. Philip sees math. He sees practical problems. He sees no spiritual solutions. They need bread. We need money. We're out of town. There's no way we can do this. What's amazing to me about this is that these disciples, this is actually their second year they've been following Jesus. Feeding of the 5,000 is the 19th miracle they've watched him perform that we know of that's mentioned, which means they've seen him turn water to wine. They've seen him have a miraculous catch of fish. They've seen him heal, heal the paralyzed, the disabled, the, the, the sick. He's seen, he's, they've seen all these things. They've, they've seen him calm the storm. They were with him in the town of Nain when he raised the widow's son during the funeral. They've seen these things. They, they've seen Jesus, the guy who just asked the question about bread. They've seen him have authority over the weather, over the elements, over the natural forces, over spiritual forces, authority over death. And after all those, after all this, when they say, when he, when he asks, you know, where can we buy some bread for them? Philip sees practical impossibility. It doesn't occur to him there might be a spiritual solution. Philip said it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for, to have one bite. But notice here, Philip answers the wrong question, and this is important. Jesus asks where. Philip answers how. Jesus asks where can I buy some bread. Philip answers we don't have enough money. He answers how it can't happen. Jesus asks where. Philip responds with how it's impossible. And why is this important? Because for many of us, what's holding our faith back is we're looking at the how instead of the where. We're, we're caught up looking at how something's impossible in the practical instead of where things become, become possible. You see, when it comes to impossible or difficult circumstances, we often say these things or think these things like, I, I, how, how, how could it ever happen? We don't have the money. We don't have the resources. We don't have the power. He said it was over. She won't have anything to do with me. It's, they said it's inoperable. We're in over our heads. There's nothing we can do. It's not going to happen. All those are, are how the situation cannot be resolved. And what holds our face back is when, faith back is that when we're faced with life's difficulties, like Philip, oftentimes, me included, we get focused on the how it won't happen instead of where it could. Where do we go to change this difficult situation? Jesus asks Philip an impossible question. He asks, where can we go to get this much food? Where? And if Jesus asks you an impossible question about where, guess what? He's the where. There is a where they can go. When you look and see the impossible, 
How, where can we go to feed this many people? Well, you, Jesus, only you. The correct answer to an impossible situation, where do you go, is Jesus. Because if Jesus is the where, catch this, if Jesus is the where, he'll provide the how. If Jesus is the where, he'll provide the how. If you can't see how it can be done, if you can't see how something will be accomplished or how you'll be set free or how this situation or this circumstance, if there's no how in the world that can resolve anything, then concern yourself with where you go with your faith and hope. And leave the how to Jesus. If Jesus is the where, we can rely on him for the how. Philip overlooked the where. He placed his faith in the wrong place. He, he placed his faith in the pocketbook they had. They don't have enough money or the too many people. Philip should have placed his faith in Jesus at this moment. Because the reality is Jesus is the where and the how that these people are about to get fed. Anytime you're in a difficult situation, storm of life, desperate need, and you cannot see how it can be solved, then the question is, where do you place your faith and hope? And do you leave the how to him? Philip had an impossible situation to figure out. What is yours? What about some relationship or marriage? Where are you facing these kinds of circumstances where the how seems impossible? Or in your power, you can't see a way of solving it. Or maybe it's job and finances. Maybe it's health or sickness. Maybe it's addiction or a sin issue. Something that has grown so big in your life that you don't know how. How could ever change? God is asking where we will go. And we're only seeing how it cannot be resolved. Perhaps today, this is, this is, this is the only thing you need to take from this. Perhaps today you, you, you assess once again where you're placing your faith, where you place your hope. Where do you go when you're in an impossible situation? Instead of just seeing the how it can't happen, go to the where it could happen. Place your faith in the where of Jesus and leave the how to him. But we can't give Philip too hard of a time. We can't give him a hard time. I mean, Philip does something really sharp here. He assesses the situation. He looks at the crowd. There's a lot of people out there, 20,000-ish, so. And then we have, let's see, we have this much money. We have this much food. Town's that far away. And he answers accordingly, right? We can't blame him. He's not a bad guy. He's a regular guy. He's just like us in some ways. He's seeing life through a human economy in the natural with the practical view. And he's correct. He's, he's actually correct in the natural we, could, we can't even provide a bite if we had half a year's salary, Jesus. You see, in, in life circumstances, oftentimes like Philip, we only see the math where things don't add up or where things are adding up and piling up against us. Just how numerous our problems are and how, how limited our hope and our resources may be. We see math, practical stuff. And like Philip, the math doesn't add up for us in some areas of our life. We're in over our heads. We don't know what to do next. We've tried everything we can in our power, and we don't have enough. You know, Math and I have always had a very difficult relationship. Since I was a kid, I've had a deficiency in math. And my brain works in words and, and, and like pictures, 
not angles and numbers. And I've struggled in every math class I've been a part of. And my dad, you know, my dad, you know my dad maybe, he, he, seeing that I was struggling, he decided he would come to my rescue. So good of him. In middle school, when my summer break started, my dad, amazing, loving, wise father, who many of you have known as pastor for years, he, he handed me a math book on the first day of summer vacation of beginning algebra and told me that every day of that vacation, every day I was going to work on a little bit of it, on my vacation. You guys remember algebra, right? That's where they just ran out of numbers. They started putting in letters too. Like variables and like quadratics and formulas or something. Like, I, you know, whatever. But here's the deal. I remember one instance very clearly in my youth. It was my summer vacation. I was upstairs playing uh, my Nintendo, playing Final Fantasy. And, and I, was, I was playing all day long. And I had to do five pages in my love, uh, lovely algebra book. And I heard the door open. Dad was home. I hadn't, I hadn't opened that book that day. I hadn't even, I don't even know what page we were on. I turned off the power so fast on that Nintendo. I sprinted down to the desk, hit the chair, opened the book, and just poured over it. As if I was just, oh, I'm in deep. I'm in so deep. When my dad walked up to me, I'm breathing heavy. Of course, I've been running, but he, Wow. He's just really getting out. And then he goes up to the Nintendo and he puts his hand over it. And you could have fried an egg on that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Needless to say, despite my parents and teachers' best efforts, math is not my favorite. And that's what Philip is working with here. But Philip is using basic arithmetic. He's adding up things, and he's seeing people, and then maybe dividing by the number. I mean, he has 20,000 people divided by half a year's wages. That equals a, maybe a bite each if we had that much money. Here's his, here's his formula. Let's, let's put it up here. Circumstance plus my power equals my results. He's working on math. We have this, this circumstance. We have our power. Let's see. My power is I got some money. Peter's got some money. Um, we got our results. This is what we got. You see, we see life the same way. We all have our circumstance. We all have our difficulties. We all know what power we can bring to bear on it. We all know our personality, our, oh, our willpower, if I just really try this time. And then you get your results. We're used to this. And sometimes the results are great, sometimes they're not. But we're going to get our results with our efforts. But here's the deal. In life's problems, when we leave Jesus out, that's, that's the only one we get because Jesus actually is a variable. Jesus works in algebra. Let's look at the other circumstance. Any circumstance plus X, that's Christ, that's him, that's God, the variable, equals God's results. Jesus is the variable. And, and part of what we are challenged to do is to bring him into the equation of our life through faith. You see, Philip had an equation, but he didn't even consider a variable. He's just working with his power, getting his results. Philip left his faith out of the equation, and there's no room for God's variable. Faith that Jesus can do what you cannot changes the way you see life from then on. When you begin to live every day with a variable, when you begin to look at every problem, every marital issue, every financial issue, every inner sin issue, everything, when you begin to look at those issues with the variable of God, it changes the way that you see life. Philip's doing math. 
And while he's doing math with his formula, another disciple decides to scan the crowd for something, anything. And it says here in verse 8, another disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two fish. But how far will they go among so many? Five little, little barley loaves. Barley loaves were the, the bread of the poor, and these were probably pickled fish. This kid's mom was a planner. She sent him with a Ziploc, and it had a wet rag in there. You know it did. Like, she knew what she was doing. That's what he had. Five little barley loaves and two pickled fish. And in the natural, this seems so ridiculous. I'm sure Philip, as he's counting, he's doing the big work. He looks over to Andrew and goes, Oh, good job, Andrew. Oh, good job. You brought us a lunchable snack pack. If you could just go back out and get 19,999 more, this would be solved, Andrew. Like, thanks. Thanks for playing, for bringing us this. At this point, we have to realize that Jesus is on this mountainside. He's now having a private conversation with his, it's like a team huddle. It's 12 disciples, Jesus, and this little kid. And everyone else in the crowd is a little bit farther down the mountain, just looking up, wondering what's next. Jesus is standing there. And these disciples look from the fish and the loaves to Jesus. Jesus, loaves, crowd, what's going to happen? And Jesus says here, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in the place, and they sat down. Now Luke adds that he had them sit down in groups of 50. So everyone sits down. Now, now if I'm a disciple, I don't know what Jesus is doing here. It's already evening, getting close to evening and we have to go divide up people. We have to divide 20,000 people into groups of 50. Have you ever worked with people? Do you know how long this would take? If you just said, hey, get in groups of 50. I mean, we're looking at at least an hour. And then there's, you know, John over here. Who, and then there's Billy over there and his family. It's just, it takes some work to get people in 400 groups of 50. Maybe an hour. And finally, finally, they, get, they huddle back up. Jesus took the loaves and gives thanks. Now, you got to put yourself in the position of the, of the disciples here. It's been a long day. Uh, finally, everyone's seated. They're all ready. But, but what are they ready for? What is he doing? He's blessing five little dinner rolls from this kid. You go back to the huddle, and Jesus is holding the kid's lunch. And then Jesus lifts it up and blesses it. And you're like, oh, he's serious. Like, like okay, we're doing this. What are we doing What's he doing? I can imagine standing there watching Jesus give thanks for five dinner rolls and two pickled fish and with 20,000 people behind me watching. He holds the fish and loaves in his hands. Now at one point, whose hands had those fish and loaves been in? The little boy's hands. At one point, those very same five loaves and two fish had been in a little boy's hands. It was his meal. It was, and how much was it worth? It was worth one lunch. One meal. But that little boy placed those five loaves and those two fish in the hands of Jesus. Now how much is it worth? Is it worth any more? Is it still worth the same? Whose hands it's in changes the worth. Whose hands it in changes everything. My talents, my gifts, my tithes are worth a certain amount in my hands. But if I place my talents, my tithes, my gifts in the hands of God, does, does it actually change anything? Does whose hands it's in change it? My friend Kevin Queen, he uses this illustration. Here's an official Major League Baseball. 
I, I bought this, and it is worth $18.64. In the hands of Daniel Self, this baseball is worth $18.64. Not bad. Not bad. But if you take this ball, and you place the same ball in Colorado Rockies closer Daniel Bard's hands in the bottom of the ninth inning, it's now worth $2,925,000. Something's worth depends on whose hands it's in. The fish and the loaves in the boys' hands, it was worth a meal. But the same fish and the same loaves in God's hands and Jesus' hands are worth what? Let's see. But first, what about you? What about you in the formula of your life? You have your gifts, your talents, your willpower, your resources, and they're worth something in your hands. And you might have made a good life out of them, made some mistakes, made some whatever, but, but it's worth something in your hand. How much of those same, in the economy of faith, if you place those talents, you place those resources, those gifts, your willpower, you place those things in the hand of the master, it changes the worth of it. It's compounded. It's multiplied. Jesus took the fish. He took the loaves. He gave thanks. He distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. They begin to distribute the fish and loaves, and it says they were given as much as they what? As much as they what? Not as much as they needed. As much as they wanted. 20,000 people, groups of 50, 400 groups, the disciples moving from group to group as fast as they can to get the food out, and everyone eats until they're full as much as they wanted. Do you see how Jesus can take our meager offerings, our, our, whatever we have in our life, our talents, our gifts, our tithes, and, and he can bless it, and the results are compounded. I want to focus on something that, that in this passage I have missed. See, John tells us it was distributed, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us detail on how it was distributed that changed this for me. Mark 14, verse 19. Taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. In my mind, when I always did the flannel graph, the bread and loaves just disappeared. Like the teacher would just slap them on there. You know? They, they were just there when he did it. And it was somehow right there in an unlimited amount. But let's read it through one more time. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven. He blessed them and broke them. And then what did he do? He handed them to the disciples. If every person eats two fish, that's 40,000 Fish. If every person eats two loaves, that's 40,000 loaves. But reading this, I don't believe that Jesus broke them, blessed them, and all of a sudden they were buried under 80,000 loaves and fish. Just come get an arm load. I don't believe it just multiplied right there. It says he held up, he held them up, he blessed them, he broke them, and he handed them to the disciples. Here's the point I don't believe the disciples were done having their faith tested. I believe the biggest faith test of this day was about to happen. Breaks up the five loaves, breaks up the fish, hands it to the disciples, and says, go give it to the crowd. What? Can you imagine being a disciple? You have a piece of fish, piece of bread. Maybe two pieces of bread, I don't know, however it worked out. 
And then you start walking toward 400 men and women sitting in a circle who are hungry. You get to the first person. What do you tell that person? Take a small bite. <laughs> this has to go a long way. <laughs> but amazingly, I believe as they begin to hand it out, more, they, they didn't run out. The more they gave out, the more they had. The more you hand to people, it did not, the, the fish and loaves in their hands did not leave their hands. Somehow, miraculously, the more they gave out, then they started giving out more and more, and it never depleted. See, sometimes God blesses something, and then in faith asks you to step out and be a part of the miracle in someone's life. Jesus blessed it in his hands, and it changed everything. And then he put it in the disciples' hands, and miraculously, they never stopped handing out food. They just never stopped. God wants miracles to happen in people's lives, and often he works in us and through, through us to perform those miracles. God gives you something of great worth so that you can go out to others and see miracles happen. And here's the point. In John 6, later on, in this, he, Jesus declares himself the bread of life. The bread of life that came from heaven to satisfy our soul in salvation. And, and at any point of your life, if you've accepted Jesus, the bread of life, into your heart, if you've accepted the bread of life into your soul, then you have that bread of life satisfaction in your soul. But you're not meant to just hold on to it. He didn't give the disciples the bread and go, all right, eat. Let, let's eat in front of all these people. You, you guys just go ahead and fill up. Let them, let's let them watch us eat. No, he gives you the bread of life. And then he asks you to go out to other people and pass that on, that they may have a miracle in their heart of receiving the bread of life. There are people who have a great need for this, people that you know at work, people that you know at home, people you might know in this room. We know people who need the bread of life, and if we have received it, it is in our hands to go forth and in word and deed present that to people. It's a miracle. If you've ever been with a friend or a family member or a coworker and prayed with them to receive the bread of life, you've seen the miracle happen. Then like these disciples, you've, you've, been a part, you've been a part of the miracle of the multiplying bread that Jesus blessed. Something meager, something small was given by a boy. Jesus blessed it in his hands and it changed everything. Jesus is the variable in any single circumstance. Jesus is the variable. He then placed the blessing into his followers' hands, and they went out, and they saw the miracle happen through them. We are called to take the miracle of Jesus' salvation to a world that needs it. We are called not to fill up. We're called to take this out to others. The disciples go forth with the bread and fish in verse 12 and 13. When they were all filled, Jesus said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and it filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. A few things to notice. Remember people ate as much as they wanted, not what they needed. They ate until they, sat, they were satisfied. They ate until they were filled. In fact, they ate more than that. They, eat, they ate more than they could eat. 
There was leftovers. When God moves in our life, he does more than we can imagine. Jesus is the variable. And in that circumstance, and in the circumstances of your life, it's an exponential multiplier. Jesus' love and and his his love and and provision is so extravagant, so out of the box, that when when Jesus moves in your life, it moves in such a way that there's abundance. If we begin to give Jesus our life's offerings, our time, our talent, treasure, we see him do amazing things. And this isn't prosperity, anything. This is the lesson of putting things in the hands of somebody that changes the worth. When Jesus blesses something, exponential compounding. And here at the orchard, here's the point. We want to, we want to have an effect, an impact on the, on the region around us. But I don't believe that's going to happen unless we as individuals, as a church family, begin to put our lives in the hands of the master. Put our faith where? Put our hope where? They, they, they belong. And to see that Jesus can do more in our life and through our life than we ever could in our own power. Twelve baskets of leftover. There's, this is no accident, and there's many reasons for it, but my favorite one is, my favorite reason why, there, why is there twelve baskets left over? Because Jesus, Jesus in his knowledge could have made it so the, the last piece that somebody ate, I'm stuffed, that was all he made. But he made sure there was 12 baskets. I believe because two hours earlier, whatever it was, disciples stood there with a little handful of food and walked toward a crowd, not knowing what was going to happen. And now at the end of it, Jesus makes sure they each have a basket to hold and look into. That's more than it was in my hands. You can imagine Philip. He has his basket. He's looking down at the barley loaves and the, his mind is blown his faith is, is expanded. And, 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 from, and from that moment on, if, if, he, if Jesus goes, hey, Philip, where do we get enough bread to feed these people? <laughs> you, Jesus, only you. And that young boy who brought his little lunch, he gets to see those leftovers. Can you imagine how amazing that would be? To close this, I want to talk to a few different groups. And some of us, first of all, to those of us who have removed Jesus as the variable from our life. We have removed Jesus as the variable in our difficulties and circumstances. We only see the how it can't happen. We're keenly aware of where things are going bad and how we can't make it right. And today, maybe it's a question that Jesus is going to ask you the question he asked Philip. Where, not how, where do you place your faith? Where do you place your hope? Perhaps today you're like the, you're like the young boy. You have your sack lunch. That's, that's, that's everything in your power that you have, your gifts, talents, resources. And you see big problems in our nation and city and locally and in your heart and your home, bigger problems than you even, bigger problems than that you have in your hands to deal with. That, that boy saw an issue. He saw 20,000 people and they brought his little offering to the front and he's like, what are you going to do with that? But what we do from, like, from this little boy is we take our faith, our life, and you place it in the hands of the master. And it changes everything. 
You place your gifts and your talents, the way you were made, you place your life, your hopes, your dreams in the hands of the master. Because in his hands, when he raises it up and blesses it, we go forth and it does what we could never do on our own. For those of us here today who, um, we would say we're followers of Jesus. At some point we've received Jesus, we believe in him, the bread of life. At that moment, he placed the bread of life in your soul. And now it is in your hands, and you're, you're a, you've received it, and now you're asked to take it somewhere. And you might think that this salvation, this bread of life, um, it, it's, what, what's it going to do? And I know what we think. I, I, have, I, have, I know salvation in Jesus. I have this bread of life. But to take it to somebody else, I don't, have, I don't know the Bible. I'm not a preacher. I don't know all the answers. Like, you really want me to go take this to somebody? But I want you to stop for one minute and think about 12 disciples who were handed some bread and told to walk toward a group of 400 people. Every excuse in the book they could have had. This is ridiculous. Jesus, this bread won't satisfy me. But but remember, Jesus had blessed it. And the bread of life did what they could never imagine because it fed everybody and here's the best part here's the best part when those disciples took the bread to the group of people they were responsible for obeying and taking it there they were not responsible for the results once they got there it wasn't up to Andrew to go okay you have it wasn't up to them to multiply it It wasn't up to them to make sure the results worked out. All they had to do is in faith, obey, take this to those who need it. Okay, I can do that. And Jesus is in charge of the results. In the same way, you've been given the bread of life and you've been handed it and said, take it to those who need it. And we somehow think we're in charge of the results. If it doesn't go well, well, it's my fault. We're only in charge of obediently taking it to people who need it. And Jesus is in charge of the results. That's the best part. We leave the results to him. And before we take communion, take, if you have it right here, take it out, please, but don't open it yet. If you need it, would you raise your hand? The Bible says in John 6 that Jesus held up the bread and gave thanks. Don't take it yet. He gave thanks. The word it uses there for give thanks is where we get the word Eucharist. Eucharist is what many churches and denominations use for, the, use for communion. Communion is Eucharist. So Jesus gave thanks. The same, listen, this is incredible. Jesus is two years into his ministry. He stands before them, holds up the loaves, and gives thanks. That same word is used almost exactly a year later He stands before the disciples again. He lifts up a different piece of bread and uses the same word. He gives thanks. Luke 22, 19, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Matthew 26 Jesus took the cup. Then he gave thanks. He gave it to them, saying, drink it, all of you. 
This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many and the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. When Jesus blesses something exponentially, it does so much more than we can imagine. Five loaves and two fish fed 20,000 people. One loaf and one cup of wine symbolically have brought salvation to millions of people as they put their faith in Jesus who shed his blood and his body was broken. So today, give thanks. And as we go into worship, how about this? May we stand and may we worship the God who is worthy, the Savior who moves on our behalf. Amen? Will you stand with me? Jesus, we thank you that we place things in your hands. It changes everything. So right now, those of us in this room and all we see is struggle and hopelessness and hurt and difficulty, we place those circumstances in your hands. And right now, those of us in here, Father, who need help, who need help, we, or who have our own talent, our own gifting, we place all of our life in your hands. You, only you can do these things. So the question isn't how do we do them, it's where do we take them. Jesus, it's you. And so now we bring our worship to you. May you hear our hearts.